a Flow Media production. Beautiful, a true crime memoir. Written by Cameron Lundgren. Narrated by Jesse Angeles. A tale of fast romance that escalated quickly into a heated exchange. One man now is left accused of a murder that he didn't commit and robbed of the grieving of his lost love. Epilogue. When it came to, my only thought was how to stop the tremendous pounding in my chest. My eyes snapped open and immediately recoiled under the bright lights, which were now stinging my teary eyes. Blinking hard from the impenetrable glare, I looked around at the familiar two-by-four barren walls of my mom's basement. Was I alive? I guardedly hoisted myself up into a sitting position. I was still in bed, where I had taken my lethal shot. My eyes darted toward my arm, covered in blood, the syringe laying by my side. The room was swaying a bit. Or maybe my heart was causing the whole bed to shake. Maybe I was hallucinating. Maybe this was my purgatory. A feminine giggle from the other side of the room ripped my head to the right. (laughs) Cameron, catch, it declared, just as I turned to see the rubber ball flying toward me before smashing into my face. My vision began to clear, as did the swirling fog in my brain. I recognized the voice, Victoria, one of my ex-girlfriends who I hadn't seen in a year. I staggered toward the office chair next to my bed, the one I had grown accustomed to over the last few months, when my back pain was so agonizing I could barely walk. This time I only needed to keep from falling over due to my haze. I stood still to gulp in the air before finally making it to the chair and slid into a dark corner of the room where Victoria's voice came. Throw the ball back. Victoria's voice seemed to be materializing out of nowhere, now back underneath my bed. The ball was magically in my hands again. I slightly sank forward and tossed the ball again. Merely seconds later, the ball rolled back toward the chair and I laughed. I laughed. I was playing catch with a disembodied voice, and all I could do was laugh? Why are you in my mom's basement, Victoria? I asked, full of bewilderment and curiosity. I'm just here to play. Her voice was happy, casual, and matter-of-fact. We continued tossing the ball back and forth when a nearby footstep echoed down the stairs, breaking up our fun. The doorknob turned, and my mom's head poked around the corner. What are you doing? It's three in the morning. Her quizzical eyes pinned me with uncertainty. Turn off the TV and go to bed, Cameron. Mom, Victoria's here, I explained as I sat in the chair holding an imaginary ball. A smile plastered on my face. She's underneath my bed. We're throwing this ball back and forth. I reached out to show her the ball and frowned at an empty hand. The ball was gone. Mom stared at me with sleepy eyes topped with hefted eyebrows. Cam, Victoria isn't here. You need to go to bed. And with that, she turned off the lights and trudged back upstairs. The emptiness that now filled the room kicked me out of my days. And I was suddenly very aware that something weird was happening. The last thing I remembered was the needle in my arm and the conviction to leave this world. Scooted the chair back over to my bed. I grabbed my phone off the nightstand exposing the dried blood coating my left arm. Had mom not seen this? And where did Victoria go? 
a deep state of exhaustion began to cloud my mind again. No doubt the residual effects of the massive dose of heroin and cocaine I had injected. Pulling myself back into bed, the delirium from the toxins began to grow faint as I fell into a deep sleep. The sun was pricking at the darkness through the window, but it no longer burned my eyes. My heart had resumed its steady, normal drumbeat, and I wasn't seeing the ghost of a girlfriend's past. It was a miracle that I was alive, and I knew it. But even more, I knew there was a reason for it. I think maybe I was supposed to live. There had to be a purpose after all this pain and suffering. Surely, God wouldn't let me live if I was supposed to be dead right now. Yet, even with the tingling sensation of hope after cheating death, I still had one major question to resolve. How am I supposed to rebuild from here? I was now 40 years old living in my mom's basement. The woman I love had shot herself in front of me. My kids wanted nothing to do with me. I had either lost or sold most of my possessions, and my last dollar was spent on a life insurance policy that my kids would no longer be able to cash in soon. To top it off, I had acquired a crippling drug addiction. How would my body tolerate a withdrawal? It was Friday, and I still had enough heroin to last me through Monday morning. But instead of using up the last of my stash, I lay in bed. Shana and I had talked about our goals often, yet she never had the chance to achieve them. If I could make goals then, I could do it now. I would achieve them both for Shana and me. After all, this wasn't the first time I had fought my way out of a deep hole. I lay there all day, strategizing the overhaul of my life. People at my old job used to call me relentless. I was stubborn. And if I wanted something, there wasn't a thing in this world keeping me from it. 24 hours after attempting suicide, I had made up my mind. I was going to crawl, scratch, and kick my way back to happiness. The first step was to get off these drugs. Monday morning, I woke up in a cold sweat, my bones aching to the core. There are no words to explain an opiate withdrawal, and I can't explain it now. The drawer to my heroin stash called out to me, egging me on. I ignored it. My mom was still asleep upstairs when I turned on the shower. I ran the water as hot as I could get it and soaked my bones until they were numb, trying to wash off the withdrawal, wash off any lingering thoughts of, you can't do this. After throwing on my clothes, I walked out the door. I was three months behind my truck payments and was near to losing it soon. But for now, it was still mine and it was going to serve me a purpose today. The early morning sun accompanied me on my drive, the pastel pink and the burnt orange hues gliding up behind the mountains. There was a difference in the air today in Utah, one filled with something I hadn't felt in months, motivation. As I drove down the freeway, it was as if I could feel the small pressure of two people sitting on either shoulder, the angel and the devil. The angel told me to stay focused on my destination. The devil was telling me to find a quick cash grab to buy more heroin. The leather seats that were drenched in sweat by the time I pulled off I-15 and made my way to the parking lot. 
the truck clock displayed 5 a.m., just in time for the methadone clinic to open. The line to get in wrapped around the building, mostly filled with the city's homeless population. I shuddered to think joining that population wasn't far from my reality. As I walked past to the front of the line to make my way to the back, a man wearing dirty white clothes grabbed my arm to stop me. Shit. I don't want any trouble. I sheepishly turned toward the man, ready for a fight. But my gaze was met with kind, piercing blue eyes. You're among friends, he assured me. And you're at the right place. My jaw slackened momentarily before bursting into tears. And a woman, a few people behind us, ran over to envelop me in a hug. Before I knew it, two men grabbed my hands and led me inside. I was a mess, and the old saying, takes one to know one, came to my mind. The counselor's office was sterile except for the picture frame on his desk, facing away from me. I sat in a metal chair across from his desk, exhaling everything that had happened to me, explaining my drug history, what had happened to Shana, and my current drug use. His name was Gordon, and he promised he'd help me. It was a major step, one in my grand scheme of rebuilding. The next day I applied for a job and was shocked when I got a call back. I guess despite my history, they were impressed by my decade-long sales career. The position was 100% commission, but still, it was something. Small traces of hope glimmered inside me, but I remained level-headed. If I got too excited too quick and then something fell through... I would undoubtedly unravel and spiral back to where I'd started. Instead, I opted for a cautious optimism. After securing the position, I began setting up more formal home office in my mom's basement. There was a gentle pep in my step. My mom, of course, was ecstatic when I told her about the job. As much as I loved to see her so excited, her relief also fueled my guilt. I had put her through so much since moving in with her, delving into a nightmare world of drugs that altered my behavior, leaving her confused and worried. Now in the mornings, I would be up early to say goodbye before heading off to work. Though at this time of day, I was secretly meeting with Gordon at the methadone clinic. I wasn't quite ready to tell her about it yet, but she was the main force of motivation to stay sober. I owed it to her. The methadone helped reduce my cravings and the severity of the withdrawal symptoms. I met with Gordon nearly daily for a month, steadily increasing my dosage to where I finally felt comfortable to be alone with my thoughts. It felt good. So good, in fact, I had already convinced myself that I could start reducing my dose and get off the methadone completely. Walking into Gordon's office one morning, I decided I'd tell him how good I was doing. He'd be so impressed by my fortitude, he began tapering me off. I had already rehearsed my acceptance speech the night before. When he called me in, I sat down with all the confidence of someone on antidepressants who thought they were happy enough to stop the medication. I exhaled deeply and delivered my speech. Gordon, I don't want to be a lifetime member of Methadone Clinic like some people I see here. I'm ready to get off once and for all. He pierced me with a peculiar stare, 
then sighed incredulously. Cameron, he began, shaking his head. I see this a lot, and it's not a good idea. Methadone is to get you off of the psychological idea that you need to use drugs and level you out. You need some time feeling normal before you get off. If you pull the plug too early, you'll likely relapse. My shoulders sagged, and I could tell he was gauging my reaction carefully. That being said, I'm not going to tell you no. If you really, really want to stop now, I can call the doctor and see if he'll approve it. Though I was disappointed in his response, my resolve to get better, paired with my unwavering stubbornness, was stronger than his advice. I had made my mind up. Yes, I'd like you to ask the doctor, Gordon. He shook his head once more and picked up the desk phone to call the on-site doctor. I watched intently as Gordon relayed my message, followed by a few hmms before hanging up. The doctor won't approve it this early, he confirmed. Fuck. Guess I'll need to form a plan B. Because of COVID's new social restrictions, the clinic was now closed for two days of the week, Saturday and Sunday. On those days, they'd send you home with two take-home doses. This was the answer to my problem. This was how I would decrease my dosage myself. My take-home doses went unused, and I grimaced through the ensuing sickness until the following Monday when I'd go to the clinic in person. On the weekdays, I would show up and would wait in line until I reached the nurse's station. They'd confirm your dose before handing you a plastic cup in which you were expected to drink the cherry liquid right then and there in front of them. I'd swallow half and leave half of my mouth to spit out as I left the parking lot. Come hell or high water, I was doing this with or without the clinic's help. At work, I introduced myself as CJ in an effort to disguise my real identity, though it was in vain. Anytime I sat across from a new prospect, my paranoia would tell me the prospect knew who I was, the monster the news portrayed me as. In a misguided effort to control the situation, I'd end up word vomiting my story to the new prospect, only to never hear from the person ever again. I felt uncomfortably rocky in this new position when I compared it to how well I had been doing in the job before Shana's death. My confidence in my career was faltering, but I still held on to my faith. Six months passed, and I had lowered my dose to literally nothing, but I was still living in my mom's basement. My performance at work was incomparable to my previous sales job, where I had once been making six figures a year. I now made only 10,000 so far. If I was going to truly rebuild, I needed my independence back. I needed a place to call home on my own. I had to stomach the fact that 15 years worth of savings was gone. I had to start from the bottom up, just like I did when I was 20. Only this time I couldn't rely on drugs to turn me into a top earner. One morning, I decided to go to the DMV and take the CDL, commercial driver's license, test to see what would happen. I had previously owned dump trucks as a side business. That side of the business was a total failure mainly because without my CDL, I was the blind leading the blind. 
This time would be different and maybe I would put all my efforts into something besides sales. I paid my own drivers around $25 an hour, which was the amount I felt I could live on. To my shock, I completed the test just shy of passing. After going home and doing a little brush up on my knowledge, I went and took the test the next day and passed. With my CDL in hand, the last step of my life rebuilding plan was to officially taper off the methadone. I spent the next month taking as little as I possibly could, rationing off my take-home dose instead of going to the clinic for in-person doses. Underneath the months of heroin use was a mound of emotions I had buried away. They were coming to the forefront now and I didn't have drugs to numb the pain this time. I have to trudge through the dirt alone as I spent nearly every night for months crying until I fell asleep with nothing to now mask the pain I felt. One day I was chugging along at work driving an old dusty dump truck when I paused and realized I hadn't taken the methadone in a few days and felt fine. The side effects had vanished into thin air. The finality of getting off the opiates was not like the times in my early 20s. Hunched up in the fetal position, a pool of sweat trembling through seconds that felt like hours. This time was different. The feeling of accomplishment was immeasurable and unexplainable. Something I had never thought was obtainable six months prior. I could be normal again. I could actually get my life back. My workday looked a lot different now than it had in the past. Juggling both my payroll job and driving dump trucks. I'd set up a green screen behind the driver's seat in the dump truck so I could host virtual meetings with prospects for the payroll job. I was making twice the progress as usual. I was working longer hours than I had in my previous sales job to make up for my insecurities during prospect meetings. But the long hours spent calling and driving became a main source of therapy for me, allowing me to process the years-long worth of thoughts I had banished. I had been driving my friend's dump truck, starting with 30-hour weeks that turned more into 50-hour weeks pretty quickly. I was maximizing my time while driving, which left me with personal time to work on this memoir. I also sought out support of a therapist who guided me through my trauma, allowing me to explore my emotions in a way that none of my friends or family members could help me with. I finally moved out of my mom's basement and began renting a small three-bedroom house. The first couple weeks in my new place were a tad unsettling. I often worried that I'd force myself to be on my own too early. Quickly settling into my new routine, I also found that having my own personal space was comforting. It was exhilarating to be self-reliant once again, capable of earning money, paying bills, keeping my truck, and having my own bedroom again. My family helped me move in with the furniture I still had left stored at my mom's house. It wasn't much after many of my belongings were trashed, but it was enough. After six months of getting clean, finding two new jobs, moving out, and seeing a therapist, I was finally able to mourn Shana's death in the way my heart and body needed to. Now in my new house, I sat down at my computer desk, opened up to draft the memoir, and began to rewrite this story and fill in the gaps. 
Two years later, my life looks a lot different. Working the two jobs allowed me to come up with the down payment for a dump truck. I was able to restart my trucking company. Today, I am a successful entrepreneur again. After getting sober and working through my trauma, I was able to reestablish a relationship with my boys. By the time this is published, we'll have been to Mexico twice, camping, driving go-karts, the nickel arcade, and playing board games. It's almost like it never happened. My oldest even moved in with me to make it more convenient for him to go to college. We talked about life, and I'm proud to be able to guide them both, good and bad. My life these days is a lot different than it was before Shana died, but it's nothing like my life the year and a half after her death. Today, I'm happy. When I was making over a quarter million a year, I can't even say I was happy then. I assumed I was, but looking back, it's clear to see the chaos that followed me. My relationship with my boys had already begun to suffer when I was dating Shana. I threw money at my problems instead of facing an issue head-on or reflecting internally. I was a middle-aged man obsessed with being young again instead of feeling blessed with things I already had in my life. I used to judge success on the amount of money you made and the materialistic things you owned. Gone now are my days of self-medicating with partying women, alcohol, and drugs. Unfortunately, it took my attempting suicide to fix my way of thinking, which changed my addictive habits. Not the best way to handle things. What kept me sober all those years between my first marriage and Shana's death was a sense of mindfulness. Being sober means being careful with your choices, but most importantly, it requires a good mental state of mind to be able to make good choices. I've learned that when my mental health breaks down, so do my choices, and I didn't have the tools I have now to repair my mental health in time before relapsing. A big part of me believes that breaking my back was fate. The other day, someone on the radio talk show said, heroin saved my life. At first, I scoffed. How did drugs save my life? But without the pain pills and the heroin, I can't be sure I'd be where I am today. I wholeheartedly believe breaking my back and the months that followed were an act of God. I can't be sure that the sober Cameron three months after Shana's death would be alive right now if it weren't for the addiction masking those painful emotions, or at least in the mindset to believe he has a promising life to live. Most everyone disbelieved my recounting of these events in this story stems from the idea that Shana wasn't the type to take her own life because she was always so happy. And sure, Shana was great at masking her feelings and putting on a big smile for the outside world. But inside, she was drowning. As far as I know, I was the only person she confided in about her suicidal thoughts. I do feel we had a special connection when things were good, and maybe that gave her comfort sharing her darkest fears with me. That's the thing about depression and suicide that you hear over and over again. It's rarely from the person you expect. 
Despite a growing trend towards promoting mental health awareness, people who are depressed can still find that it's taboo to talk about their feelings or scared that admitting they see a therapist marks them with a big red crazy label on their forehead. And treating depression at this stage is, lamentably, the most crucial time because once someone has reached the point of deciding to take their own life, you'll never hear about it. It happened with Shana and it happened with me. Someone so deep in the depths of despair doesn't want to be talked out of their decision. I replayed that night in my mind thousands of times. It's bizarre. The entire night plays as a blur in my head, like the aftermath of an explosion, but the memory of Shana standing in the doorway felt like it lasted 10 minutes, as if time had slowed. I want to believe Shana didn't mean to pull the trigger, that it was an accident. I never kept my pistol loaded, let alone cocked, so she had intent to do something but I think it happened quicker than she expected. The pistol had a hair trigger, and it was nickel-plated, a.k.a. heavy. I remember watching the gun in her hand with her finger on the trigger, sitting against her right thigh. She swung it backward a little, as if to get momentum to pull the heavy gun upward, before swaying it up and next to her head. It went off almost simultaneously, as if the momentum of the pistol accidentally caught the trigger with her finger. Then again, me and John finding the charm of hers in the exact same place makes it hard not to believe it wasn't premeditated. If it wasn't premeditated, the only other explanation is an angel must have placed them there for us. I play those final moments over and over in my head. I often wished she would have had a chance to say something. A simple explanation like, I give up, or one final, I love you. Hell, I would have taken, I hate you. Anything that would have given me precious moments to try and talk her out of it. I'm still searching for my higher purpose, for why I was saved the night of my overdose. And now I have the support of my family, friends, sons, and God to guide me. As I continue to rebuild my life, I think about how sharing my story of Shana's death could have lasting impact on someone who may feel hopeless or without direction. I recall our conversations lying in bed where she expressed her complete lack of motivation and her need to cover up her sadness with drinking. Clear signs of depression that I recognize in hindsight that I wish I would have known how to deal with before it was too late. I think about using my skills in sales and my love for working with people and how I could transfer that to helping someone think about taking their own life. I may set up a foundation at some point to do just that. Maybe my purpose was to write this memoir in hopes it will touch one person or someone who knows someone who may be at the point of suicide to read a firsthand account of how suicide affects all who love them or perhaps help someone recognize the warning signs. And maybe I have yet to find out what my purpose is. What I do know today, and every day going forward, I choose life. Not a day goes by where I don't think of Shana, her smile, our laughter, the times we lay in bed and I tell her jokes, listening to music together, 
or even holding her in my arms as we drifted to sleep. The memories are still clear, but the pain that accompanies them grows fainter. Since meeting Shana, I felt a deep connection to my spirituality, far stronger than I did before, to the point of being overwhelmed by it. I felt Shana's spirit, as evident by anecdotes in this book, my reckless partying with Shana put me on a crash course to death, but God had intervened and reminded me of who was in charge. Miracles happen every day, even as simple as a breath, but miracles are not always what you think. It's not someone overcoming a deadly disease or being saved in a car accident by a matter of inches. Miracles are often disguised as a flat tire that just saved you from the person running the red light just ahead or the loss of a job you weren't meant to be in. I've come to see miracles much more clearly now. I embrace setbacks and hardships now because that's when I know angels are shaping my future. Many people close to me know how big my ego is and how stubborn I am. But God has humbled me to my core. He removed everything good in my life. He stripped me naked of the woman I loved, the career I was proud of, the kids I would do anything for, and all my silly possessions. And yet, now, today, after losing all of that, I have the strongest connection with God I've ever had. I'm happy. Since the beginning of this memoir, a national suicide hotline has been established. Your life matters. No matter how much we convince ourselves in those dark moments it doesn't, it matters to someone. I lost everything I had convincing myself I had nothing left to live for. Yet, look at me now. Mental health is a serious issue, especially with how fast our world is evolving. My next step is to set up a foundation to help those, but in the meantime, if you find yourself with thoughts of suicide, please, I beg you, pick up the phone and call the National Suicide Prevention and Mental Health Crisis hotline and dial 988-TALK to someone. Our minds are our worst enemies in this state, but a friend will never convince you to do such a tragic, horrible thing. People love you. You are love. Choose to live. Thank you again for joining us here on the podcast. Just a reminder, this podcast comes out every Monday and Wednesday, so go ahead and mark that on your calendar. Also, you can get this book on Amazon, so go ahead and click on the link below, and you could either read along with us or you can skip ahead, find out what happens to Cam. Again, thanks so much for being here today. This is a Flow Media production.